Okay, well, we're attempting this recording for the third time. Uh, we've been having some technical difficulties with the recording, but uh, I let's check. Dave, how do you, how are you feeling and sounding? <laughs> I'm fine. Okay, all right. Um, it stopped at about a minute and a half last time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna speak as fast as I can. Um, so for background, <laughs> we're we're doing the Ottoman Empire up to the Revolution of 1908. Uh, and I'd just like to remind people that uh, we did, a couple years ago, we did Civilizations episode 34, the Islam mm-hmm. and Imperialism series. So you can catch up to the point we're going to pick it up from there. There is a bit of a review because we did cover some of the stuff you're about to say in that episode. Right. So why don't we start with that review, Dave? Okay. So that previous episode dealt with uh, the sick man of Europe, the long decline of the Ottoman Empire and their vulnerability. Nationalism came very late to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, Like the Habsburg Austro-Hungarian Empire, they're multi-ethnic and multi-religious. Christians and Jews were granted religious freedom and a considerable degree of local autonomy, uh, you know, control over local affairs as long as they paid their taxes and kept the peace. That, that doesn't mean that Muslims considered them uh, equal, but you know there were no major efforts to convert or assimilate them. So you have uh, at least a million Greeks living, in, living on the coast of, uh, of Turkey <clears throat> on the Ionian Sea. You have, uh, my gosh, Armenians and Syrians and Arabs and Iraq and, I mean, so, so many minorities. And in, in some ways, that's admirable, right? The policy of toleration and, and all of that. But it doesn't give you the unity of these new nationalistic Western nation Yeah, states. and I mean, coming off of our episode on Austria-Hungary... It is interesting because you look at these empires that have these huge multi-ethnic forms and they manage to to stay together for hundreds of years and you think nationalism is relatively new and yes. I don't know how mm. it's working <laughs> in historical terms. It's hard to say. I mean, it's what we have. But uh, and we have to make do with it, I suppose. But I'm not sure it's it's uh, the best the best way to do things. Oh, I I'm pretty sure it's far from the yeah. best way. The uh, the minorities <clears throat> in the Ottoman Empire were divided into millets. I hope I pronounced that correctly. But these are just uh, religious communities that worked for a long time. But now nationalism is coming to those areas especially in the Balkans and in Eastern Europe. So during this decline, uh, Greece was lost. Greece won its independence in 1830. Uh, then we, we covered another episode on uh, Muhammad Ali of Egypt defeating the Ottoman Sultan in the war over Syria. And the Sultan was only saved by uh, timely Western intervention. <clears throat> then you had Serbia gaining autonomy. Uh, the Bulgarians developed their nationalism more slowly because they belonged to the Greek Orthodox millet or community. It was only when they created a separate Bulgarian church in 1870 that their nationalism took off. 
I don't think we could do a full episode, but it's very interesting to look at the connection between nationalism and the national church in some of these countries. Uh, It was the Bosnian revolt of 1875 that spread throughout the Turkish possessions in Europe. It led to a war with Russia and to a pretty catastrophic defeat for the Ottomans. Uh, The Congress of Berlin in 1878 was called to limit Russian gains, but it didn't do much to help the Ottomans. Bulgaria was granted autonomy. Serbia, Romania, and Montenegro won outright independence. Uh, The Turks also lost territory in the Caucasus to Russia. And Austria was given the right to occupy and administer Bosnia-Herzegovina, which of course will be a problem in this episode and in the future. Uh, Britain took Cyprus as their door prize, and that meant that all that was left of Turkey in Europe were the provinces of Macedonia and Thrace. So the war and the Congress of Berlin were both massive humiliations for the Ottoman. Just if I look at a map... Uh, I find myself having to ask, does Greece, does independent Greece have designs on Macedonia or Thrace? Or Yes, they do. Right. So does Serbia. So does Bulgaria. Okay. Because the people who live there are ethnically mixed. And that question of like, who are those people is going to come up very soon and it's going to come up repeatedly. And in the ancient world, of course, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these are connected to Greece, right? And well, probably to the vision of of greater Hellen- Hellenistic uh, times change, right? The sure the, cla- the classical Greeks thought of the Macedonians as barbarians, mm. and and were horrified when Macedonia when Philip of Macedon conquered them. Today, of course, Alexander the Great is 100% Greek. He's more Greek than (laughs) Greek, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and we have copyright on the name Macedonia, so you can't use it even if you're an independent country. (laughs) Yeah. So the, the, uh, the Ottoman Empire was quite clearly being propped up by Britain just so that they could block Russian access to the, the Mediterranean. So this is another humiliation. And, and the sick man of Europe, that phrase, you know, can't sit very well if you're, if you're Turkish. The empire uh, was lagging behind in technology, in industry, and they hadn't really been affected as much by uh, Western liberal ideas like constitutionalism. They had already started their... Uh, attempts to modernize. So the Tanzimat reforms uh, began in 1839, and they were designed to modernize the Ottoman Empire without radically transforming it. And we've seen this all over, right? This is, you know, Peter the Great, and this is virtually every country (laughs) with an autocratic ruler who wants to modernize his country. I just don't want to change too much. You don't want to reform yourself out of power, but... right. (laughs) <laughs> right. So to meet the the rising tide of nationalism, uh, they proposed the Edict of Gulhane in, in 1839 as well, 
And this declared equality before the law for both Muslim and non-Muslim Ottomans. Wow, that's a big deal. Yeah, except that some historians uh, suggest that what this really meant was the rhetorical promotion of equality of non-Muslims on paper versus the primacy of Muslims in practice. Well, yeah, but I mean, paper precedes... You, you got to get it on paper first, right? Can I get this on paper at least? Right. Yeah. But future conduct will right. reveal the real intention, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, well, we'll we'll go ahead with the story and you can decide for yourself. <laughs> so sultans uh, Mahmoud II and Abdul Majid uh, recognized that the old religious and military institutions were no longer competitive, n- not against Europeans. Yeah. So they made huge changes. They introduced uh, banknotes, uh, a post office, a census, only males were counted. They reformed the civil and criminal law codes, created a ministry of education, an academy of sciences, and they really picked up on the telegraph and railroads. They also abolished some old practices, such as the devshirme. I hope I got that close. (laughs) It's the practice of forcibly recruiting children in the Balkans to make them uh, soldiers particularly, but also bureaucrats. So the the Janissaries used to be formed largely of uh, Balkan Christians who'd just been, you know, taken away and and raised to be soldiers. The Janissaries had been disbanded in, in 1826. But the reaction to the edict was not entirely positive. Uh, Christians in the Balkans didn't like these reforms because they wanted uh, more autonomy. And as the Ottoman Empire centralizes power, that's going to become more difficult. And, and some say that these reforms actually spurred some provinces to seek their independence by rebellion. Yeah. And there's a there's a kind of a moral hazard here, right? Because of the growing power of the western powers in the now redu- rapidly reducing Ottoman Empire because they are they as we said in our episode 34, they they they've designated themselves as protectors of minorities. So France has declared it's the protector of the Catholic minority in the Ottoman Empire. Britain has designated itself as the protector of the Jewish minority and Russia, the Orthodox minority. So there's this kind of situation where if you're a minority and you're thinking of rebelling, you do have a good chance that you'll get some support from the big powers of the day who have already declared. And it does lead to major wars. Crimean War and uh, and the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78. Exactly that problem. Yeah. And and there's a, re- you know, you, you have to anticipate that reform is going to lead to a backlash from conservative elements, especially traditionalist Muslims. And these reforms, ultimately, they, they didn't save the empire. But they did contribute to the education 
of a generation of young men with more progressive ideas. So here's where we meet the young Ottomans. So this adding young to the name uh, comes from the Young Italy movement, the the uh, early nationalists trying to win independence for Italy from Austrians. So in 1865, six young men had a picnic in a forest near Istanbul, and they set up a secret society modeled explicitly on the Italian Carbonari. Uh, Namik Kemal was one, and Ibrahim Shinasi was another. They were both repeatedly <laughs> exiled, uh, but they wrote and published reformist newspapers and books. Uh, Zia Pasha was another. He was a former uh, secretariat of the palace who'd been uh, pressured out of his position. He went to France and published newspapers. And these papers had titles like uh, Freedom, Science, Revolution, or Lesson. And they were published in London, Geneva, Paris, Lyon, and Marseille. Uh, you know, obviously enough, you can tell that they were influenced by Western ideas. So what the young Ottomans wanted was a constitutional monarchy with representative government based either on the British or French model. They're still discussing those options. Uh, They believed that Ottoman weakness was due to the inertia of Islamic society with its reliance on Sharia law and its distrust of reform. There was a saying uh, attributed to the Prophet Muhammad, I I don't know if it's true, but the saying was, every novelty is an innovation, every innovation is an error, and every error leads to hellfire. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, that's this is interesting because... There's um, there's some nuance because in different, I guess, sects of Islam, because like Shia Islam has this concept of ijtihad, which is like basically constant interpretation and reinterpretation. Yes. So that's like, but um, but then there are different strands in Sunni Islam too. Uh, but the the really anti innovation one is is probably Salafi or Wahhabi in the Arab world or Diobandi in like Afghanistan, Pakistan, India kind of thing. Um, right, and I could find you the same quotation in in the Roman Catholic Church when exactly, yeah. when they're dealing with Galileo and you know other errors. It's tactical, right? It's sort of like. Uh, used politically how he's going to get to claim religion but but the young turks i guess or the young ottomans or whatever they they also adopt these um organizational methods of secret societies that are big in europe at this time too so you know take a blindfold and go and to a room and there's people with robes and (laughs) passwords and symbols and secret handshakes and um encrypted letters uh, there's a oath of loyalty you signed with a quran and a revolver um and there's assassinations kidnappings and ca- kind of like fanatical loyalty demanded of this small select group of adherents so <laughs> it's just, they, they really got into a lot of the things that were happening in europe um and i guess they're closer to europe so they yeah <laughs> they have a they have a lot more uh depth 
to to what they know about about what Europeans are doing. But that some of those the the romantic trappings. I mean, doesn't it remind you a little bit of you know Freemasons or yeah yeah exactly. or or what's the society at Harvard, the Skull and Bones? That's a Yale, yeah. Skull oh Yale, Bones okay, Yale. That's yeah. where they get all the CIA people. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> so these are uh, liberal constitutional reformers who are going to adopt the methods of. Conspiracy. <laughs> Nas- nationalist, yeah. And yeah, and some of the methods of radical oh, revolutionaries. Uh, Sultan Abdulaziz was the very first Ottoman Sultan to travel to Western Europe. He went to Paris, to London, and Vienna in 1867. He uh, admired the material progress of the West. And he had a passion for, for ships and, and his navy, which I'm astonished. In 1875, the Turkish navy was the third largest in the world. Uh, also interested in literature, composed classical music on his own. By then, though, he was already aging and uh, unpopular. Then, of course, you have the external problems. From 1873 to 1878, the empire went through a series of major crises, uh, catastrophic droughts and floods in Anatolia, a global stock market crash, and desperate for revenue in an attempt to increase government revenue, they raised taxes on the surviving population, which led to major discontent. Bad, Bad decision. Revolts broke out in Bosnia, and that just exploded into major uprisings all over the Balkans, and especially in Bulgaria in 1876. We've already covered this. The Turkish response was major massacres and atrocities, which offended humanitarian opinion all over Europe, particularly uh, the British. Gladstone came out very strongly uh, against this. And it gave the Russians a pretext for declaring war because they're the protectors of, you know, Orthodox people in, in the Balkans. So now we have a war with Russia. Uh, the new Sehul Islam, Hassan Heyrullah Effendi, uh, issued a fatwa for the removal of the Sultan. And the head of the young Ottomans at this time uh, was Midhat Pasha. He had been governor of Nish, the uh, Danubian province. He'd been governor of Baghdad. He'd been appointed Grand Vizier in 1872, but was dismissed after two months. He, he clashed with the Sultan over financial issues. He was twice Minister of Justice, but again was dismissed because of his liberal constitutional outlook. But here's a guy who's been inside the government. So with several other military leaders, Midhat Pasha orchestrated a coup against the Sultan May 30th, 1876, and Abdul Aziz was deposed. And there's some kind of constitution of 1876, isn't there? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So this is the first uh, constitution. The Sultan died six days later after after being deposed. Uh, his death was ruled a suicide. Now, I found a few sources claiming that Abdulaziz died because he was assassinated. 
And there's even one author, Islamic nationalist, uh, Nesip Fazil Kisakurik, who claimed that it was a clandestine operation carried out by the British. The British don't assassinate people. Uh, <laughs> why would you want to kill the deposed sultan? Uh, yeah, well, fair enough. Qui bono? You got to ask Qui bono. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Tserkes Hassan, the brother of one of Abdul Aziz's wives, came to Midhat Pasha's mansion, where the leaders of the coup were, were gathered. He shot and killed five men, including the foreign minister, and he wounded ten more. So this is a bit of a blow to your coup when, <laughs> you know, one of the sultan's... Uh, Brothers-in-law, I guess, uh, comes in and slaughters half of the coup leaders. That's a big, that's a big blow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, constitutional government, but constitutional monarchy. So the conspirators had to find a new sultan. They chose Murad the Fifth, uh, Abdulaziz's nephew. So they made him sultan. He supported the conversion to a constitutional monarchy. Uh, unfortunately, he was physically frail and mentally unstable. Okay, mentally unstable is probably too generous. He was uh, pretty crazy. Okay. His reign lasted 93 days. So this isn't a good sign when your first choice, uh, you know. Right. So now the young Ottomans turn to Abdul Hamid II. And this guy is going to be a big deal. He was young. Uh, untried, meaning nobody knew much about him, but Midhat Pasha got Abdul Hamid to promise to support a constitution and a parliament. So on December 10th, 1876, the new constitution was promulgated. It had been written by Midhat Pasha, Namik Kemal, and Zia Pasha, so the young Ottomans. This is the young Ottoman constitution. Two months later, Abdul Hamid, felt secure enough to send Midhat Pasha into exile. Parliament opened... No, that didn't take long at all. I don't know how he got it done that quickly. Uh, Parliament opened in March 1877, but there wasn't anything they could do except air their grievances. And they decided to uh, demand that three ministers of the Sultan appear before them and the Sultan dissolved Parliament. This is February 1878. So if you're thinking of the French Revolution, uh, the tennis court oath didn't happen. <laughs> the, the delegates were simply dismissed, and that's the end of the Parliament. The British insisted that Midhat Pasha be allowed to return, and Abdul, Abdul Hamid said, okay, and he made him governor of Syria. Three years later, he had him arrested and charged him with the murder of Sultan Abdulaziz. Uh, Midhat Pasha was imprisoned and then strangled in his cell in 1883. And for the next wow. 30 years, Abdul Hamid ruled as a typical Ottoman sultan, meaning autocratically. Right. So the young Ottoman revolution, which was more of a coup, to be, to be fair, yeah, uh, didn't last very long, and Abdul Hamid 
became known as uh, the Spider. Interesting nickname. <laughs> From uh, Game of... They have a character named the Spider in uh, Game of Thrones because he's a spy master and a unit. Right. There's I guess a, it's borrowed from that. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe I know there's a French king, one of the uh, medieval Louis, who was also known as the Spider, but Abdul Hamid was definitely paranoid. He he spent quite a bit of time reading reports from his enormous army of spies and paid informers. So, despite losing all these territories in Europe in in the war and because of the Congress of Berlin, the Sultan still had enormous minorities. So I mentioned the over a million Greeks, mostly along the western coast of Anatolia, a million Armenians in the eastern province, and nationalism was coming to those people too. Uh, The Armenians had become more nationalistic since the 1850s. Now the young Ottoman solution to this was representative government in which the minorities, especially the Armenians, could participate. But the Sultan... Uh, and his advisors, had a different approach. They mobilized uh, irregular units of Kurds from eastern Anatolia and used them to uh, quell the unrest uh, in traditional fashion, which meant that they rode in and massacred people. So the result was the uh, little-known Armenian massacres of 1894 to 1896, Pretty significant too. I, I was shocked by the scale of it. Tens of thousands of people were killed. A group of Armenians uh, seized an Ottoman bank in the suburbs of Constantinople. This was a, you know, you could call it a terrorist operation. But what they were hoping to do was garner some European attention and some European sympathy. What happened though was a paranoid overreaction, and it led to a massacre in the capital. Uh, Bad for the Turkish uh, international image, particularly the British. I mean, all of the Europeans were, were prejudiced against them already, but this now confirms their prejudices. Uh, You know, the Turks are barbarians. So nationalist Armenians you know, what's left for you to do? You're going to ally with any opponent of the Sultan. And inside the empire, that is a new group, the successors to the young Ottomans, the young Turks. So they're they're coming. Uh, Abdul Hamid didn't just read spy reports. He also repressed any and all opposition. Any sign of liberalism, any freedom of expression, The newspapers were censored, and you could not use words like constitution or parliament. Like the the mention of the words was illegal. Now, the constitutionalists and, you know, people who are uh, attracted to Western ideas, you can banish them or, or you can silence them. What you can't do is hide the fact that the Western powers are technologically and economically much stronger. The signs are there, you know, for everybody to see. So the first railway in Turkey opened in 1866, built by the British. 
1888, you could go from Constantinople to Vienna by train. And the railways brought an influx of Westerners into the empire. The government had to pay the concessionaires who'd built the railway tracks an annual fee, and this tied up revenues. They had borrowed heavily already to finance the Crimean War, and uh, they kept out they kept on taking out loans. Does this sound familiar yeah. to you at all? <laughs> it sounds familiar, and it wow, is it ever a, a harbinger too, right? Uh, when the when the Ottoman Empire is finally just like is this finally carved up, and after World War One, it's all through finance. So much yeah. of it is through finance. Yeah. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm reminded of the example of Egypt. By 1881, the Ottoman public debt amounted to over 100 million gold pounds. The main revenue of the government came from tobacco and salt monopolies, from customs and stamp duties, and all of that revenue went into servicing the debt. And then the debt got so big that the foreign bondholders insisted on having a commission set up to administer the debt. So control of Ottoman finances is gradually passing out of the hands of Ottomans. <laughs> there you go. The IMF. <laughs> yeah. Before it. And, and also Morocco. We just talked about this in Morocco. Same, yeah, exactly the same deal. So obviously another humiliation for the Ottomans. Uh, Namik Kemal said, uh, industry is a product of intelligence. Is it not a pity that a nation endowed like the Ottomans with extraordinary quickness of mind should be obliged to import from abroad even the clothes that it wears? The Sultan accepted Western technical and technological help. He, he accepted Western skills and certainly Western capital, but he continued to try to repress Western ideas. In fact, he's using their technology to increase his grip on the empire. Sir Charles Eliot wrote, They are great patrons of the telegraph because it is a most powerful instrument for a despot who wishes to control his own officials. But it's a, a dangerous game that Abdul Hamid is playing because, you know, you have to have young men trained to use the telegraph or to run the railroad, and these young men are going to be trained by Europeans, and they're going to absorb some ideas. And many, many of these young men would later become valuable recruits uh, for the young Turks. I mentioned that Abdul Hamid was paranoid. He lived in the Yildiz kiosk with warrens of subterranean passages. It was built by hundreds of architects and, and workers, none of whom knew the whole layout. Doesn't this remind you of like the pyramids? Yeah, and, then, yeah. and then you have them all killed so that you're the only... But <laughs> I don't know if he had them killed, but only the Sultan knew the entire layout of his palace. And he left his palace only to go to the mosque. And then he had a mosque specific, specifically built for him one street away. This is exactly what uh, Europeans think. Uh, this is like ex he's fulfilling every Orientalist. Confirming every prejudice. <laughs> that you, yeah. 
Yeah. So he, he ate only food prepared by his private cook. Then he started distrusting the plates so that he would only eat from the cupped hands of the women of his harem. Hmm. Are these stories true? Uh, <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah, but they were widely believed. I guess maybe that's the, the point. He paid heavily for any rumor of conspiracy. Uh, he also seems to have trusted his astrologers more than his ministers. So, yeah, uh, quite a few stereotypes there. Maybe not a bad call. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, he the way he came to power is uh, is the kind of way where you would be paranoid. Yeah, that's true. That's true. After what happened to your predecessor, so, yeah, yeah. He was uh, pretty skilled at, um, what would you call it, prevarication. <laughs> so... Right. So when the Europeans complained about his treatment of his Christian subjects, he would promise reforms and and then just, you know, never deliver. Uh, He hesitated in some cases to his advantage and some cases not. So when there was unrest in Egypt, he hesitated about sending Turkish troops and then lost the opportunity because the British moved in. He was apparently obsessed with Armenia. So there's a a famous quote of Abdul Hamid. He said, by taking away Greece and Romania, Europe has cut off the feet of the Turkish state body. The loss of Bulgaria, Serbia, and Egypt has deprived us of our hands. And now, by means of this Armenian agitation, they want to get at our most vital parts and tear out our entrails. Well, if that's how the guy feels and you're one of his agents, you know what kind of reports to send back. <laughs> vivid, vivid, vivid imagery. Yeah, yeah. But his his spies and agents are sending back exaggerated reports of Western-trained Armenian revolutionaries. So he just instructed governors to uh, repress the rebels by all means. Abdul Hamid couldn't play the nationalist card or, or didn't want to. But he did play up his role as uh, as caliph, as defender of the faith. And Kaiser Wilhelm had his role to play in that. <laughs> Our friend Wilhelm uh, visited Constantinople in 1898 and made one of his speeches. Couldn't help himself. He promised eternal friendship to the 300 million Muslims scattered over the world, who reverence him as their caliph. So if the British are going to protect the Jews and the French are going to protect the Catholics and the Russians are going to protect the Orthodox, Germany will now protect the Muslims. <laughs> Naturally. It's quite, yeah, quite obvious, right? It's like the scramble for Africa. We'll take you yeah. know, whatever's left. So German aid uh, started to become very important. There was money available for railway schemes, including a line to Mecca and Medina so that, you know, pilgrims could take the train. So we're building this alliance that becomes important in World War I. Yes. Yeah, it starts here for sure. Uh, Plus, there was a military mission to train the Ottoman army, German instructors. 
it took a surprisingly long time for opposition to Abdul Hamid to to grow. I don't know if it's because of his uh, the success of his repressive measures. His spies and his provocateurs were effective. Many opponents were forced underground or into uh, exile. Uh, conservative Muslims considered the schools and colleges to be breeding grounds of, of heresy. Subject teachers were removed and the curriculum was strictly imposed. No deviation allowed. So it was a little bit like Florida today. Uh, still, there were students helped by daring teachers that got their hands on uh, prescribed works. Now, the Sultan needed education to improve his army and, and the technology of the empire. Uh, the eternal paradox of education. Right. <laughs> Such a problem. Right. Well, yeah, he ended up helping to produce a new educated class who would be critical of his government. So pan-Islamism at, at this stage of the game couldn't compete with a more potent story or a more potent myth that the empire's problems could be solved by representative government and a union of the elements in the empire. I mean, honestly, the Ottomans have been trying the religious angle for a couple of centuries now. So these constitutional arguments are going to be persuasive. And this is the ideas that are espoused by the, the next generation of Abdul Hamid's opponents, the, the young Turks. So in 1889, four medical students met in the gardens of the Army Medical College. I, I love the way the, you know these groups start. It's either a picnic or we'll meet in the gardens. So once again, they founded a secret society based on the Italian, uh, the Young Italy movement. They're not even going to appeal to religious conservatives. And, and not to the peasants either. But they're going to appeal to that new educated elite. And many of those young educated men are in the army. And that's where the young Turks are going to have some success, winning over army officers. In 1897, uh, the Sultan was worried enough to try to break up the movement among army cadets by imprisoning and deporting suspect guys. Uh, but he, he also held out I, olive branches. I, I, Where do people get deported to? You, there's quite a few remote provinces in the Ottoman oh, okay. Empire. So within, right? within the empire, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 You're going to Iraq. <laughs> Somewhere where your minority isn't in, around. Like, you, yeah. you don't speak the language. And stuff. Yeah. Uh, but the Sultan also reached out to prominent exiles, and he succeeded in persuading one of the most influential, a fellow named Murad Bey, to, to come back and become part of the Council of State. So now the, ex, the exiles are, are kind of split between the uh, hardliners and the ones who were you know, willing to work with the Sultan in return for a prominent post. I couldn't figure out, I have to admit, exactly when the young Ottomans disappeared. But it they, wasn't right away after the repression? No, no, no. I mean, they kept publishing and writing stuff, but it just seems to have gradually petered out. That's the impression I get. But the young 
Turks held their first Congress of Ottoman Opposition in 1902 in, in Paris. And it's quite a mixed group of secular, liberal intellectuals and revolutionaries. Uh, in some cases, the only thing they had in common was their opposition to the absolute rule of Abdul Hamid and, and a desire to reinstate the constitution. 47 men attended. Uh, Armenian delegates were there. And they wanted to hold the proceedings in French so that they could understand, but their their proposal was rejected. And a second Congress was held in, in 1907, again in, in Paris. So now some leaders began to uh, emerge. One of them was Ahmed Riza, uh, born in 1858. And he was a, a, an early leader of the CUP, the Committee of Union and Progress. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of use of this word union, That's although it doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. <laughs> it certainly isn't about uh, syndicalism. <laughs> no, 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 no. So the CUP was a secret organization, also founded in 1889, and they're calling for democratization, secularization, and reform. Uh, Ahmed Riza's uh, father spoke English and was an Anglophile. He, he admired Britain to the point that he was nicknamed Inglis. And he had married a Hungarian woman born in Munich who converted to Islam. Uh, Ahmed Riza studied agriculture in France and was influenced by positivism. Sorry, positivism. So the idea of scientific proof over metaphysics or, or theism. He was influenced by uh, Auguste Comte. He also wanted to improve conditions for Ottoman peasants. Now, Riza is a Turkish nationalist. That's not a secret. But he's also horrified by Abdul Hamid's massacres. Uh, He escaped to Paris, published a magazine, Mesferet, which became the official voice of the CUP. And their propaganda was largely directed at the army. On the question of the use of violence, in 1907, he reluctantly endorsed the use of violence to depose the sultan, later reversed his position. So I'm, I'm looking for someone in other revolutions to compare him to. Mm. That's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, he's not quite a fit for... They're all, yeah, th- this is, it's so different. I, this is such a different revolution. I um, I was looking at different sources. Uh, I asked Sina from the East as a podcast to uh, recommend something. He found a, a German scholar named Zürcher or something, Zürcher, something like this. Uh, but I found a Turkish scholar, a I guess he's American. He he's, teaches at Princeton, uh, and he has a book, a couple of books I, I consulted for this one. One is called "The Young Turks in Opposition," and he talks about some of the intellectual influences on the Young Turks and explains a little bit about what they, why they rejected Marxism. So there was Marxism around, but they didn't get into it. So there there were some of them at the medical academy. He names one named Abdullah Sevdet. Again, I don't know Turkish language, so I'm going to 
I, at best, I'll end up pronouncing these Arab with Arabic <laughs> pronunciation. So I apologize to any Turkish listeners, Kurdish listeners, people who know Turkish. Um, but so Abdullah Sevdets, uh, he apparently published what was what uh, Hanioglu calls uh, scientific poetry. So they were they believed in science everywhere. And they liked intellectu- intellectuals from Europe, like uh, someone named Francois Vincent Raspail, who believed in uh, re- replacing religion with science, all religion replaced with science. He said, le, le salut de la nation, c'est la science. So like, you know, the the salut, the what, the calling card of a nation is science, something like that. Hmm. Um, oh, no, lot- saving. Saving. Oh, okay. Oh, the salvation. Yes. Yeah. The salvation yes. of a nation is science. That makes sense. Uh, Claude Bernard, who rejected all philosophical systems, so strictly experiment, only experimental science matters. Uh, and that's also not a good <laughs> scientific view, I, I don't think. Um, and Ludwig Buchner, uh, who's from Vienna, who deprecated Marxist materialism and despised such politics, according to Hanyoglu. Uh, Buchner underscored the material foundations of life, uh, wanted to eliminate religion, and, and this is one of the favorite um, authors of the Young Turks at the medical school. They also were big fans of Darwin, Darwinism, uh, despite Buchner not liking it. And the Sultan, of course, viewed them as a bunch of atheists. Another one of the young Turks that had influence, but not all that much, was uh, Hussein Zade Ali. And Hussein Zade Ali studied in St. Petersburg, uh, became a Narodnik. So if you guys go back and listen to our materials on the Russian Revolution of 1905, he became a uh, Narodnik and tried to get the young Turks into Narodnism, but <laughs> Hanioglu says that there wasn't a social base for it, so it didn't really go anywhere. They did, however, the young Turks get big into Gustave Le Bon and Charles Letourneau, uh, into phrenology, into scientific racism. And Le Bon's elitist theories, Hanioglu writes, became the political component of the Young Turk ideology, while Letourneau shaped the political aspect. Thus, a scientific, anti-religious, and elitist ideology was born. And Hanioglu, in another book, says that the Young Turks believed in racial hierarchy, they just didn't believe they were in the right place <laughs> they were they were not being placed in the right spot in the racial hierarchy and they were really this was another group that was really encouraged uh, by the japanese performance in the russo-japanese war yes. they said let's this is a revision this proves that we're not racially inferior if we're from asia right so zercher's article uh in 2019 which is a comparative analysis of different revolutions. And I'll come back to that. Characterizes the CUP, the Congress of Union and Progress, as a Paris-led network of cells in Romania, Egypt, Bulgaria, and Greece with a growing network in Anatolia between 1905 and 1908. But in the Eastern provinces, as you're going to explain, there's a different subgroup of the Young Turks. Yeah, they're going to... Uh, there's a new, another leader, Prince Sabahadin de Neuchâtel. What a what a name! 
Yeah, Neuchâtel sounds super French. It's in yeah, it's in Switzerland. <laughs> mm. So Prince Sabahadin, uh, born in 1879, so he's still very young, was a sociologist and a follower of Emile Durkheim. He's also a member of the House of Osman. So he's Osman a- is Ottoman. It's he's actually Abdul Hamid's nephew. So and he, he fled to Geneva in 1899. Now, his interpretation of union means unity between Christians and Muslims. So he founded the League for Private Initiative and Decentralization. <laughs> Sounds like a real modern guy. <laughs> Doesn't it? Sounds like a group that could be in Toronto right now. Yeah, but the decentralization, <laughs> this is going to appeal to Christian minorities. Sure. And he's a he's a liberal like the uh, CUP in terms of you know liberal economic policies, but he's a rival, I guess, to the CUP. So, despite the name, the Young Turks, they initially, at least, included many Arabs, Albanians, Jews, Armenians, and Greeks among them. So, on the Arab composition. There's an interesting lineage from oh. the Arab uh, Young Turks. So the Young Turks that were Arabs, they would go on to form an organization, a secret society of Arab officers inside the Ottoman Empire. They founded it in 1914, and it was called Al-Ahd. Um, and these officers would go on to join the Arab Revolt in 1916, which uh-huh. I'm sure we'll talk about. Oh, yes. And one of them has a really interesting biography, which I think it was Zercher that talks about it. Aziz Ali al-Misri, uh, al-Misr is Egypt. Uh, he was an Ottoman officer who was in the CUP, 1906 to 1907. He fell out with one of the leaders, who you're going to talk about more, Enver. Enver Pasha, yeah. Enver Pasha. He was tried for treason in February 1914. Uh, founded Al-Ahd with some other uh, officers. He became the Inspector General of the Egyptian Army in 1938. He was interned by the British during World War II as an Axis sympathizer. (laughs) Then he went on to help with the Free Officers Coup in 1952 and ended up becoming uh, Nasser of Egypt's ambassador to Moscow. (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) A checkered career indeed. Wow. So... Wow. So the Young Turks got around. Yeah. That's that's another thing that I, you know, I keep forgetting. You're reading about these people in 1898 or 1908, and and you forget that they didn't die immediately after the story. No, they didn't just step onto the historical stage and die. Yeah. So there's another leader uh, or or sub-leader, perhaps, in the uh, the Young Turks, and this is Kachatur Malumian. He represents the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, founded in 1890. He's a journalist and a political activist, and the ARF supplied arms to people who had to face the Sultan's purges. They organized a rebellion in 1896, so they had a, a, a militant wing quite early. And I was surprised that their militia fighters were called Fedayi. Is that not the same root of the, you know, the the Arab Fedayin? Yeah, I guess there's a lot of words in the in the in common. 
I, I recognize a lot of words that so I the, see. So in- the, the root of the word uh, means those who sacrifice themselves. And, and uh, this movement, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, they, they were behind the occupation of the Ottoman Bank in Constantinople. Now, Armenians are stuck in, a, in an awful position between Russia and the Ottoman Empire. Sometimes the Russians support them against the Ottomans. I mean, obviously for their own purposes. But more often, it seems like the Russians are trying to establish control. By 1904, the ARF abandoned its policy of non-struggle with the czar with czarist authorities and and many uh, armenians suspected the russian government of orchestrating or encouraging bloody clashes between armenians and at the time caucasian tatars is what they're called and i'm wondering is are these uh, azeris azerbaijan the fighting started in baku that was the the clue I went with. Wow! Yeah, probably. It yeah. sounds sounds right, but I I've never I see that word Tatar, but I don't know what what that means. I've never known. Uh, kind of descendants, offshoots of the Mongols, uh, okay. the Crimean Tatars. So it was okay. The young Turks then are are basically divided from the start. Prince Sabahadin wants to call on foreign powers to force the Sultan to carry out his treaty obligations, namely the protection of minorities, particularly the Armenians. Uh, Ahmed Riza argues that this is an internet, uh, sorry, an internal matter, and that inviting European powers to intervene would infringe on Ottoman independence. They're also split on the question of centralization. Sabahadin being the pro-decentralization, Ahmed Riza, a nationalist centralizer. So sometimes, I, th- I think I mentioned to you off mic that I've never had the same level of interest or obsession with this revolution as I do with lots of other revolutions, and I've been trying to figure out why. And Zercher gives me a clue when he writes the following. He says, unlike the Russian, Iranian, Portuguese, and Chinese revolutionary movements, indeed the Armenian one too, the Young Turk movement did not contain a radical socialist or republican wing. It did not include calls for social reform or social justice. Ultimately, its constitutional program was instrumentalist, the ulterior aim being the preserving and strengthening of the Ottoman state. So that's ex- that's excellent. Yeah. So it's it's perfectly true. Hard to get excited about if you're someone from not from there, I guess. (laughs) Well, yeah, if you're not a a upper middle class liberal, yeah, doesn't have much in there for you. Yeah, there's no socialism in that at all. all. (laughs) But despite that, they started having success infiltrating army units. Uh, Young officers had been well trained, but the soldiers were underpaid, and uh, much of their equipment was obsolete. And and, uh, cadets were reading the works of Namik Kemal and and Ahmed Riza. A group of officers in Damascus set up a society called Fatherland and Freedom. One of these young officers was a man named Mustafa Kemal. I think you'll hear about him. Remember that name. Yeah. (laughs) We'll, We'll come back to that guy. Uh, then there was a chief clerk on the telegraph uh, in the telegraph office 
uh, named Talat, who set up the Ottoman Freedom Society in Salonika, in the, the remaining Turkish territory in Macedonia and, and Greece. These groups also set up counter-espionage systems to make life difficult for the Sultan spies. And they succeeded in winning over the very important third army stationed in Macedonia. And then Talat formally merged his group with the CUP. So all of their, you know, uh, spreading the word and, and uh, I don't know, what would you call it, plotting and scheming, is progressing. But then there was a trigger that set them off. And it was a meeting in June of 1908 in Reval, uh, in the uh, Baltic states between King Edward VII and Tsar Nicholas. And they had a, uh, a friendly chat, which of course made the Kaiser super paranoid. He thought his uncle was, you know, scheming against him. But among other things, they discussed reform in Macedonia. And this came very soon after Sir Edward Grey, the British foreign minister, had proposed an autonomous regime in Macedonia. And that has to frighten yeah, the Ottomans. Um, so Zercher says, uh, the specter of British-Russian agreement was such a nightmare for the Ottomans, because basically because the Britain was upholding the remaining Ottoman claims in Eastern Europe, right? Only Britain? I don't know. It seems like this would be a point to, you know, turn to Germany. Or... Yeah, yeah. But then you're just starting World War One earlier. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. But it is it is very frightening when, you know, the British who, yeah. who've supported your yeah. regime, propped you up, are now talking about autonomy for Macedonia. That, you know, that's one step closer to the end. So to nationalistic young Turks, this sounded like, you know, the uh, the bell ringing or the or the knell of doom. The final dismemberment of their empire is about to to happen. The guts, the entrails, the entrails are about guts. to be torn out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So young officers, motivated by uh, national pride, you know, maybe constitutionalism is the way to achieve the power they need to to oppose the Europeans. The army officers weren't as interested in Prince Sabahadin's message. They definitely go with, with the CUP. Now, the Sultan is not unaware of unrest in his Macedonian army, and he particularly uh, suspected a young officer named Enver Bey of being a revolutionary. Enver was uh, invited to return to Constantinople for <clears throat> promotion, <laughs> Will they be promoting his head separately from his body, maybe? Yeah, I think Enver figured out what that <laughs> meant. So he took to the hills, and oh, uh, on the 4th of July, Major Ahmed Niazi did the same with 200 of his men. So I've got a long quote from Zercher here, because he describes what the rebellion actually looks like. Okay. And how he how Niazi in particular behaved. So he says, once his unit had entered any given village, Niazi would convene the elders and hold a speech in which he warned the villagers of the impending danger of foreign intervention and of the Muslims in Macedonia coming under Christian rule. 
He then blamed this on the weakness and corruption of the government in Constantinople, but never on the Sultan himself, and said that there was only one solution, the reintroduction of parliamentary and constitutional rule. Later on in his campaign, Niazi also addressed Christian, Serb, and Bulgarian villages. There, his discourse was slightly different, emphasizing that constitutional and parliamentary rule would bring true equality and brotherhood among Muslims and Christians, but also threatening the villages with severe punishment if they did not join the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Carrot and stick. What, silk. Isn't the, didn't the Ottomans invent the velvet glove and the mailed fist? Isn't I don't that know. their thing? Uh, at the same time, as he was trying, no, it was the Byzantines. Yeah, they didn't the do Byzantines. the Velvet Glove very often. I got the right, I got the right region, but yeah, the wrong empire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at the same time, as he was trying to raise the local population, Niazi also addressed a second audience. Every time his unit came across a post office, he sent off telegrams to provincial officials and to the government in Istanbul. Repeating the demands of the revolutionaries, reinstatement of the Constitution of 1876, and reconvening of Parliament. The government was receiving similar telegrams from Niazi's unionist colleagues, who had gone into the hills in other parts of Macedonia, and in the course of three weeks, the demands became more and more peremptory. If the demands had not been met by 26th of July, the unionists threatened to march on the capital. That's pretty... That that's fascinating. That Niazi is going to talk to Muslims and give them the CUP line, and then yeah. he's going to talk to Christians and give them the the Sabahadi, Prince Sabahadi <laughs> line. Yeah, very instrumental. Very yeah. very instrumental. And and then the other thing for me is it's so uninspiring. This all this quest for a constitution. I mean, it's so legalistic, and I don't I don't understand how that is such an inspiring rattle, rallying cry. Well, reinstate, just, the con- reinstate the Constitution of 1876. I, yeah. I'm just imagining these groups of Macedonian villagers standing there wondering, what is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get it, guys. Let's go get that Constitution. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Well, the, the Sultan is, is uh, worried enough that he sent out uh, General Shemsi Pasha to suppress the mutiny, but uh, the general was shot dead coming out of the telegraph office in Monastir, and the whole Third Army mutinied. And, and the mutiny is now th- threatening to spread to Second Army. So you're going to send troops to quell the mutiny, but they're going to be affected by the mutiny. So Abdul Hamid now you know, pulls out the whole bag of tricks. He's going to try bribes, promotions, promises to finally pay the troops. But as you say, the Young Turks sent him a telegram and demanded restoration of the 1876 constitution and the convening of a chamber of deputies. And they gave him an ultimatum. If he refused, they promise action, which will not meet with your majesty's approval. (laughs) There's a, there's a thing I call the Canadian threat, you know, where they, they always say it as like, well, I'd hate to have to do this. You know, I'd, I'd hate, I'd hate to have to, (laughs) it's, it's that polite, way of threatening somebody yeah yeah well yeah you may you may not like what happens (laughs) i would hate to have to do something that would not meet with your approval (laughs) yeah so two days later abdul hamid gave in and the newspapers printed words that had not been openly spoken for 30 years Uh, freedom constitution parliament 
and there was quite a big party in the streets of Constantinople. Partying in the streets over the Constitution. (laughs) Maybe they understood it. Maybe. Uh, You know, they say that in, uh, I mean, they don't say I've seen it in Venezuela. In Venezuela, you can buy the Constitution on a street corner, you know, a little copy of the 1998 Constitution. Hmm. Everybody reads it. So defections. So you mentioned defections starting on July 4th, but by July 25th, French and Austrian newspapers were declaring this a revolution. So this was internationally recognized. And it's interesting because Zercher, this article that I keep talking about, is a comparison of the Young Turk revolution with a set of other revolutions. Um, And he's building off of an article that he cites from 1995 by Nader Sohrabi. And Nader Sohrabi compares the Turkish revolution to Russia, 1905, which we've covered, Persia, 1906, which I didn't know there was a revolution in 1906 in Persia. Maybe we should do a little episode about that. Oh, my God. Um, as our list of episodes grows long, uh, and then the Ottoman. But Sohrabi talked about how constitutionalism was dominating the revolutionary imaginary. This is a word political scholars use, the political imaginary in the 19th century. The long 19th century, as they call it. I yeah. guess the long 19th century ends when World War One starts. Yes, yeah? yes. So... Zercher adds two more. He adds the Portuguese Revolution of 1910, which oh, I also dear. didn't know we'd have to well, cover now. I was thinking we would deal with it when we got to Salazar. So kind of interwar. Oh, and then dear. the Chinese Revolution of 1911-12, which we always had planned to do. Yes. Uh, so he explains he's skipping Mexico 1911 to 1921. Don't worry. We're, we'll cover that one. Oh, that's listeners. too much fun to ignore. <laughs> But he's got the following similarities and differences. So the similarities between these revolutions is the regime loses legitimacy by being humiliated by other powers, usually Britain, but in Russia's case, Japan. The revolutionaries are all seeking constitutionalism and representative government. They're not seeking communism or socialism or Bolshevism, the kinds of things that they do just a few decades later. Mm -hmm. And then differences. Okay, so he goes across differences. So Russia, as l- we quoted Lenin in our episode in nineteen on nineteen oh five, that there was a lot of strikes. There were a lot of industrial working class mass actions in Russia, but the army remained loyal. Meanwhile, in Iran or Persia, there was a smaller working class, and the army was divided. And then Portugal, China, and Ottoman Empire had protests but not a lot of working class strike action and the military was with the revolution so they had coups um but one point that zercher wants to make emphatically is that the turkey revolution of 1908 did not get it was not inspired by like it wasn't an export from russia or anything like that no no yeah so He also says, again, some of the descriptions that he gives of what was actually going on are great. So he says, there was no fighting in the streets or storming of barracks in the capital. Not until April 1909, at any rate, when they had to fight the counter-revolutionaries. The revolutionaries set themselves up as watchdogs of the new constitutional order. And it was only five years later in the coup of January 1913 that they would take over power themselves. Mm -hmm. So they were real constitutionalists for almost half a decade. 
<laughs> well, yeah. Well, th- yeah, there's no there's no massive popular uprising. This is the army doing it. You yeah. you could you know, distinguish this as a coup. But as you say, the European newspapers called it a revolution, so I guess that's yeah. how it's uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, Zercher sounds like a a good piece. Foreign reaction at first was mixed. The British approved. Obviously, if you're going to use words like constitutionalism, uh, then we... <laughs> we... It will meet with our rather qualified approval. <laughs> yes, yes. Not too um, much, too fast, old chums. Yes, uh, but, you know, relations had to recover from uh, the Armenian massacres, uh, the Kaiser's visit and his proclamation. Really, relations hadn't been good since 1876 when, you know, Gladstone spoke out about the uh, Bulgarian massacres. But the Young Turks, at least on the surface, seem to be liberals. And that's, you know, that's a good word for the British. Other countries, though, are worried that these Young Turks might actually pull off some kind of revitalization of the Ottoman Empire, that they might be able to better defend their their far-flung provinces. And that is worrisome to a number of countries, obviously Russia, but uh, Greece. The island of Crete took advantage to declare their union with independent Greece. And Prince Ferdinand of Bulgaria, which was an autonomous part of the Turkish Empire, declared independence and made himself czar. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that again because it's part of the next episode. But the, the, the biggest move, I suppose the most impactful move, was made by Austria-Hungary. Uh, I've mentioned uh, Christopher Clark and Margaret Macmillan before. I did not rely on them for this episode. I'll tell you why in a moment. <laughs> but they both say that Austria-Hungary was going to annex Bosnia-Herzegovina anyway. This was coming up. But the Young Turk Revolution sped up the timetable, meaning let's do it now before the Young Turks are able to improve their their defenses and and possibly stop us. So these two authors, I think I made it clear before, Macmillan approaches the causes of World War I from a very uh, British, very diplomatic history perspective. Clark really spends an awful lot of time on uh, Serbia, hundreds of pages to the the Serbian point of view. He mentions the Young Turks twice. In a book of 700 pages, two mentions of the Young Turks. Macmillan refers to them nine times. (laughs) I mean, once, once once you hear our next episode, you'll see the connection between the Young Turk Revolution and, you know, what comes next. Okay, so here's our constitutional government. The CUP formed a political party, and they swept the elections held in February 1909. How did they know? Did they have coaches? I mean, in if you want to form a political party today in a country like Venezuela or Cuba or Haiti, you go to the International Republican Institute, you go to the National Endowment for Democracy. Were there these kinds of institutions to show people how to 
make a party and run elections and all that stuff? I, I suspect not. Hmm. So but just read, but read remember, the, the army is now in control, and they're going to call mm-hmm. the elections. And you know what organizations are there that can form yeah. a party? So elections, the, though. I mean, did they? Ha- is this the first one, or have they had local ones? I mean, I don't know how the first the first parliament came to be, but but I mean, mm-hmm. it didn't last very long. So, <laughs> kind of a moot point. Yeah. In this case, though, f- over the next four years, the Young Turks tightened their grip on power. And that's when it became clear that having so many army officers involved wasn't entirely a good thing. And the parliament became a, a facade. The-, the government was actually a dictatorship. Well, actually, it was more of a, a triumvirate. Uh, Enver Pasha, Talat, and Jemal Pasha. Prince Sabahadin and his followers formed a, a, a vocal but powerless opposition. I mentioned before for Sabahadin and his, and his uh, supporters, the word union meant an opportunity for minorities in the empire to attain equal rights, to be treated as partners. But the army officers took the CUP line and they were strong centralizers. They suspected the loyalties of the minorities and feared that they would gravitate to the, uh, the independent Balkan states like Greece or Bulgaria. So the Young Turks had a different interpretation of union. They decided that it meant Ottomanization. Hmm. There's their nationalism. The minorities would be... So meaning uh, going back to the Ottoman way of handling... uh, Yeah, with a a few tweaks. So the minorities would be allowed religious freedom and political rights in return for loyalty to a centralized Turkish-dominated government. This is like the old regime, except for the Turkish-dominated part. Remember in the past, you know, regardless of where you came from in the Ottoman Empire you could end up being Grand Vizier, right? There were a lot of figures in Ottoman history that were right at the center of power, but that that weren't Turks. And that's not going to happen again. Enver Pasha said, there are no longer Bulgars, Greeks, Romanians, Jews, Muslims. We are all equal. We glory in being Ottoman which uh, I, I don't know how it sounds to you, but uh, it pretty quickly became clear that uh, some, some of the pigs were more equal than others. <laughs> so in uh, April 12th, 1909, there was an armed rising in Constantinople by army units and strict Muslims. Uh, it's a bit of a backlash. They are demanding an end to the corruption of the government by Western and secular ideals. And they want to return to uh, Sharia, Sharia law. The Sultan is still there. He's the, the head of a constitutional monarchy. Obviously, they don't give him any power, but he's still there as a figurehead. But he unwisely aligned himself with these counter-revolutionaries. And the, the, the movement or the, the armed rising 
was crushed by troops loyal to the new regime. And they decided to finally depose Abdul Hamid. And they replaced him with his brother, Mahmoud V. So the Young Turks had seen the danger of reactionary or counter-revolutionary forces, but they also feared the minorities. In uh, August of 1909, the Law of Associations banned political societies with a nationalist character. So that meant that Bulgarian and Greek clubs in Macedonia were suppressed. And then they passed another law, uh, the Law for the Prevention of Brigandage and Sedition, which is a curious combination, (laughs) don't you think? (laughs) But it gave the army wide powers to suppress whoever they wanted to suppress. There, there was progress. I mean, uh, Constantinople got uh, new drains, uh, fire brigades, and a fairly efficient municipal government. They, they finally removed the famous scavenger dogs. I, I don't know if uh, anybody, you know, had heard this before, but uh, garbage collection in Constantinople was handled by uh, scavenger dogs. Right. So they, they finally removed all of these dogs and shipped them to a waterless island where they, you know, died of thirst. And Constantinople finally got human garbage collection. And education was extended to girls. I found that interesting. Mm-hmm. But observers could tell uh, what was really going on. The British ambassador in 1910 uh, reported that autumn Ottoman evidently means Turk, and Ottomanization means pounding the non-Turkish elements in a Turkish mortar. <laughs> that's not bad. That's a, yeah, that's a pretty good image. Uh, lib- if you're hoping for a liberal Turkish government, you're going to be disappointed. And the young Turks were just as ruthless with the minorities as the Sultan had been. They, they didn't tolerate sure opposition were. any more than Abdul Hamid had. And by 1913, the CUP banned all other political parties. The Ottoman Empire was still uh, in decline, still dying. I mean, if you want to use some hindsight, they have not ar- arrested the downward trajectory Pan-Islamism couldn't save it. Uh, In World War I, you had Muslims uh, fighting against the Turks, Arabs particularly. And nationalism proved to be a more potent force there as as well. Yeah, it's such a mess, right? Because if it's a nationalism, then you can't have, it's not going to be an Ottoman identity it's gonna be turkish yeah turkish mortar and pounding the non-turkish elements yeah the more you uh promote ottoman nationalism the more you're suggesting to the minorities that nationalism is the way to go and you have to create something else so islam could have been it and i guess arguably it was it in the Ottoman Empire, but it, like you said, it wasn't gonna. It just wasn't lively enough at that at this time to no. to be that. No. After the war, yes, 
that's when Mustafa Kemal, Kemal Ataturk, if, if you didn't know already, uh, would foster a purely Turkish nationalism and secularism. And part of the reason for that is uh, all the disappointments that followed the revolution of 1908. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if it's not going to be Islam and it's not going to be socialism, it's going to be nationalism. And then you have all these centrifugal forces pulling the empire apart. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the 1908 revolution for you. as a, as if, I mean, they're, they are anti-imperialists in a way, right? The young Turks, they, are. they didn't, they didn't like the Western empires messing around in, in the Ottoman empire. But it's interesting that they're an anti-imperialist empire. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so we've got to come back to Turkey during the war and probably after multiple there, times, lots more to say about it. Um, we've of course going to talk about the Armenian genocide and there's much more. There's the Arab elements of this whole story. And what else do we have? Dave? Multiple significant campaigns during the war, Gallipoli, the Mosul campaign, and of course the, uh, yeah, the Arab uprising and a little piece of paper, the, the Balfour declaration. <laughs> That little scrap of paper. Yeah. And then our next episode is uh, dealing with the fallout from the Young Turks Revolution, which uh, almost led to World War I six years early. Wow. All right.